0: Chapter Ten: Of The Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, the Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter Ten: Part One More Wilfulness on the Part of the Heiress. Private Theatricals. Failure of a Young Performer, and Its Consequences. Philosophical Breakfast Table. A Morning's Excursion. No sooner did Miss Brotherton enter the room where she had left her old friend, who was still tranquilly enjoying the perfumed air which visited her through the open window as she sat knitting before it. Then, throwing her bonnet on one side, she began to examine and cross-examine her as follows. "'Pray, Miss Tremlett, do you know anything about the factory people that work in all these great ugly buildings round about Ashley?' Mrs. Tremlett looked up at her for a moment before she replied, and then said, "'I know very little about them, Miss Mary. Not much more than you do, I believe.' I have just been thinking, Mrs. Tremlett, how exceedingly wrong it is that I should be so profoundly ignorant on the subject. Wrong? I don't see anything wrong, my dear, in your not knowing what you was never told. I have been wrong in never wishing to be told. But in truth, I have never thought upon the subject, and I have been very wrong in this. That silly body, Lady Clarissa said a few words to-day which, quite unlike the usual effect of what she utters, made a great impression upon me. "'Speaking of the children who work in these factories, nurse Tremlett, "'she said theirs was a very different way of life "'from that of the children whose parents, from father to son, "'have worked for a dozen generations on the lands of the same family. "'There could not be the same sort of family feeling and attachment,' she said. "'But why should there not, Mrs. Tremlett? "'These people work on, I dare say, from generation to generation, "'and yet, God help them, poor souls. "'From the hour of my birth to the present day,' I never heard anybody talk of attachment to them. Can you explain this difference to me? I do not at all understand it, but I am quite certain it cannot be right. Why do not we know something about our poor people as the people with landed estates do about theirs? Upon my word, dear, you have asked me a question not over and above easy to answer, that is to say, as to its being right." But it is easy enough, too, in another way, for I may say plain and straight, without any fear of blundering, that the thing is impossible. What thing is impossible, Mrs. Tremlett? Why, that the factory people should be noticed by the gentlefolks, and treated in the same way as laborers that work the land. You are too wise a woman, Mrs. Tremlett, replied Mary, to assert so positively what you did not know to be true. Therefore I will take it for granted that it is impossible for people working in a factory to be treated in the same way as people working on a farm. And now, seeing, God help me, that I am most frightfully ignorant, I must beg you to tell me what it is that causes this extraordinary dissimilarity between the different classes of the laboring poor. My dear child, it would hardly be decent to enter into all the reasons— "'Country folks, that is the field laborers, I mean, "'are just as likely to be good and virtuous as their betters, "'and so they are for everything that I have ever seen to the contrary. "'But it is altogether a different thing with the factory people. "'By what I can hear, for of course I never went among them, "'they are about the worst set of creatures that burden God's earth. "'The men are vicious and the women desolate, "'taking drams often, and often when they ought to buy food.' and so horridly dirty and unthrifty that it is a common saying, you may know a factory girl as far as you can see her. So I leave you to judge, Miss Mary, whether such ladies as visit the cottages of the poor peasantry could have anything to say to such as these. Mary uttered no reply, but sat for many minutes with eyes steadfastly fixed upon the carpet. At length she raised them again to the face of her companion and said, It is then among such people as these that children, almost babies, for such as the one I have just seen, are often employed. Often, my dear? They are always employed with them. And there is no particular hardship in that, you know, because these very men and women are the parents of the children, and so they could not be separated anyhow. What a dreadful class of human beings, then, must these factory people form! Is it not considered as a great misfortune, Mrs. Tremlett, to the whole country?' Why, as to that, my dear Miss Mary, there's many will tell you that it is the finest thing in the world for the places where the great factories are established, because they give employment to so many thousands of men, women, and even the very smallest children that can stand, almost. But you must not ask me, my dear, what I think about that, for, of course, I am no fair judge at all. I, that spent my childhood in playing among the harebells, raking up little cocks of hay for the hardest work I was put to, AND GOING TO SCHOOL TO READ, WRITE, AND sew LIKE THE CHILD OF DECENT CHRISTIAN PARENTS IN A CIVILIZED COUNTRY. I CAN HARDLY PASS FAIR JUDGMENT ON GOINGS ON SO VERY DIFFERENT. BUT I HAVE HEARD, MY DEAR, FOR I BELIEVE THESE THINGS ARE TALKED OF MORE IN THE SERVANTS' HALLS THAN AMONG THE GREAT MANUFACTURERS THEMSELVES, ESPECIALLY WHEN THE LADIES ARE BY. I HAVE HEARD THAT A GREAT MANY OF THE LEARNED GENTLEMEN IN PARLIAMENT SAY THAT THE WHOLE SYSTEM IS A BLESSING TO THE COUNTRY. "'Then your account of it must be a very false one, Nurse Tremlett,' said the young heiress severely. "'I only speak after much that I have heard, and a little that I have seen,' replied the old woman meekly. "'However, my dear, dear Miss Brotherton,' she added, "'if you will take an old servant's advice who loves you very dearly, you will just make up your mind neither to talk, nor to think any more upon the subject. "'I am quite sure that it will give you no pleasure.' and it does not seem possible to me that you should do any good. For you know, my dear, that you have nothing at all to do with any of the factories now, any more than Lady Clarissa herself. Will you promise to take my advice, my dear child, and think no more about it?' "'On the contrary, Mrs. Tremlett,' replied the young lady, "'I am perfectly determined that for some time to come I will think of nothing else.' Mary Brotherton kept her word." During the whole time that the Dowling Lodge theatricals were in preparation, while every other young heart in the neighborhood, male or female, was eagerly anticipating the fate, hers was fixed steadfast and immovable upon the mysterious subject that had seized upon it. That man was born to labor, that he was condemned to live by the sweat of his brow, she knew from high authority. And, though under the social compacts which civilization has led to, some portion of every race have found the means of performing the allotted task vicariously, she felt not called upon to say that the arrangement was a bad one. It was by no means difficult to conceive why it was so, nor why of necessity it ever must be so. She felt, as all must do who reflect on the subject, that if all distinctions were by some accident suddenly removed, and the entire organization of society to begin de novo, each man standing precisely on the same level as his neighbor, the earth would not complete one revolution round the sun, ere the quality would be violated. Strength will be the lord of imbecility. And when nature made one man more active, more intelligent, or more powerful a frame than another, she made the law in which originated inequality of condition. That, as time rolled on, and mankind became bound together nation by nation, substituting the conventional distinctions of civilized society for those derived from individual strength, that when this happened, occasional anomalies should appear in the arrangement seemed inevitable, and of necessity to be endured. That it was inevitable, she conceived to be pretty nearly proved by the fact that no single authentic record makes mention of a nation in which hereditary distinction of some kind or other did not exist. Nor did it seem desirable that when the prowess, the wit, the wisdom, or the toil of an individual had endowed him with wealth beyond his fellows, He should be denied the dear privilege of endowing with all the children he loved, instead of leaving it at his death, to be struggled for and borne away by the most crafty or the most strong. All this Mary Brotherton, in her little wisdom of twenty-two years and half, could without difficulty reason upon and understand. But that among those whom fate or fortune had doomed to labor, some should be cherished, valued, honored by the masters who received and paid their industry, while other some were doomed, Under the same compact of labor and payment, to the scorn, avoidance, and contempt of those beings whose wealth and greatness proceeded from their toil, was an enigma she could in no wise comprehend. "'There must be something wrong,' argued the young girl, as day by day she paced her gravel walks in solitary meditation. "'There must be something deeply, radically wrong in a system that leads to such results.' I may perhaps be silly enough to look with something approaching envy at the noble who traces his thirty descents unbroken from the venerable ancestor, whose valor won in a hard-fought field the distinction he still bears on his armorial coat. Yet, when I look round upon what the industry of my father, the only one of his race whose name I ever heard, when I contemplate what one man's industry can bequeath to his child, I feel that there is no very substantial cause for complaining of hereditary inferiority of condition. Nay, Were I one of the peasants of whom the Lady Clarissa and Nurse Tremlett speak, I can well enough believe that I might live and die contented with a life of healthful and respected toil. But to exist in the condition of these outcast laborers, to be thrust out, as it were, beyond the pale that surrounds and protects society, to live like the wretch smitten by the witch's curse, a man forbid, must be hard to bear.' CHILDREN, YOUNG CREATURES, STILL WEARING THE STAMP OF HEAVEN FRESH UPON THEIR BROWS, ARE, AS IT SEEMS, AMONGST THESE WRETCHED ONES. I WILL FIND OUT WHY THIS IS SO, OR BE WORRIED TO DEATH BY SIR MATTHEW DOWLING AND HIS FELLOW GREAT ONES IN THE ATTEMPT. TOWARDS THE END OF THE MONTH, WHICH preceded THE GRAND DISPLAY EXPECTED AT DOWLING LODGE, MR. Osmond NORVAL REQUESTED PERMISSION TO SUBMIT HIS COMPOSITION TO MISS BROTHERTON'S PERUSAL. A compliment she graciously consented to receive, being desirous, before she witnessed its performance, of learning all she could respecting Sir Matthew's rather mysterious adoption of the factory boy, and also of the poor child's equally mysterious sufferings under the benevolent process that was performing on him. The little drama, therefore, which, for obvious classical reasons the poet denominated a mask, reached her hands enveloped in delicately scented paper. But all she learned thereby was, that Mister Norval had thought proper to entitle it Gratitude and Goodness, or The Romance of Dowling Lodge, and to prelude it by a sonnet to be spoken by himself as prologue, in which a modest allusion was made to Milton's composition of Comus for the use of the Bridgewater family. She had, moreover, the gratification of discovering in what order Sir Matthew, Lady Clarissa, the poet, the governess, most of the young Dowlings, and the little Michael himself were to appear upon the scene; And then she returned the young gentleman's M.S. with a very honest assurance that she doubted not the composition would most satisfactorily answer every purpose for which it was intended. Absurd as the whole business appeared to her, she resolved to be present at the representation, and, having perceived in her study of the exits and entrances that no part was allotted to the homely Martha, she determined to place herself near her during the performance in the hope of eliciting the information she was so anxious to obtain. On many occasions Miss Brotherton had remarked that this young lady either kept herself or was kept very much apart from the rest of the family, which circumstance had been quite sufficient to propitiate her kindness, for most cordially did Mary Brotherton dislike the whole dowling race. But so deep-seated was the feeling of poor Martha herself that nobody did or could wish to converse with her, that the handshakings and smiles of the heiress had never suggested to her the idea that she might wish to be better acquainted. This shyness had hitherto effectually kept them apart. But no sooner did Mary perceive that the neglected girl was the only one of the family above the age of a mere baby, to whom no part in Mr. Norville's drama was allotted, than she resolved to profit by the circumstance, and, if possible, get from her such a commentary upon the piece as might enable her to comprehend its plot and underplot. Accordingly, when the great night of representation arrived, Miss Brotherton reached the lodge somewhat before the hour named in the invitation, and finding, as she expected, the room where the company were to be received unoccupied, she desired one of the liveried attendants to send Miss Martha Dowling's maid to her. A female servant soon appeared. "'Are you Miss Martha's maid?' said the young lady. "'Oh, dear, no, ma'am. I am Miss Dowling's and Miss Harriet's maid. Miss Martha never wants a lady's maid at all. But I can take any message from you, ma'am, that you may please to send.' Miss Brotherton took one of her own cards and wrote upon it with a pencil. "'Dear Miss Martha, if you are not going to act in the play, "'will you have the kindness to come to me?' This note the soubrette, as in duty bound, first showed to her own young ladies. "'Good gracious, how very odd! "'What can Miss Brotherton have to say to Martha?' "'Martha, of all the people in the world! "'She is not ill, Crompton, is she?' said Miss Arabella. "'Oh, dear, no, ma'am, at least she don't look so.' She seemed in a great hurry, however, for me to take the card. "'Well, take it, then,' cried Miss Harriet impatiently. "'And make haste, or I shall never get my ringlets done. They take such a time. Do give her the card, Arabella. What good is there in spelling it over a dozen times?' "'I dare say she only wants to cross-question her about Augustus and what he's going to act. So take the card, Crompton, and run with it to Martha as fast as you can.' Crompton and the card found Martha sitting still undressed in the obscure little room allotted to her in the children's wing. She was deep in the pages of A New Romance, and being, if possible, more certain than usual that her presence would not be wanted, had made up her mind to enjoy herself till the time arrived for the commencement of the play, when it was her purpose to join the large party invited in their progress from the drawing-room to the theatre. On receiving Miss Brotherton's card, however, she hastily resumed the business of her toilet for though the summons was as unintelligible to her as to her sisters, she felt at least an equal desire that it should be civilly complied with. It never took long to make poor Martha as smart as she ever thought it necessary to be, and in a very few minutes she joined Miss Brotherton in the drawing-room. "'This is very kind of you, Miss Martha. I hope I have not hurried you,' said the heiress, taking her hand so kindly that the shy girl could not but feel encouraged to speak to her with rather more confidence than usual.' "'Why are you not going to take a part?' was the next question. "'I take a part?' "'Oh, Miss Brotherton, what should I make of acting?' said Martha, laughing and blushing in reply. "'Nay, I think you are very right, Martha. "'I assure you nothing could have persuaded me to have made the attempt. "'But I thought that if you did not play, "'you would perhaps have the kindness to take charge of me and let me sit by you. "'For unless I have somebody to tell me what it all means, I shall be horribly puzzled.' "'I will tell you everything I can,' replied Martha, good-humouredly. "'But I don't think I understand much about it myself. "'What sort of a little boy is it that your papa has been so kind to? "'Everybody is talking about it, and Lady Clarissa says there is something quite sublime "'in what he is going to do for him. "'But I suppose Sir Matthew must have remarked some qualities particularly amiable and good "'in the child, or he would not distinguish him so remarkably from all the others of the "'same class.' "'You have heard the story of his saving Lady Clarissa Shrimpton from the cow that was going to toss her, have you not, Miss Brotherton?' "'Yes, my dear, I heard all that. You know, the morning I was here. Though, by the by, you were not in the room, I remember. But there must be something more in it than that. Do tell me all you know.' "'Indeed, I don't know anything more,' said Martha. "'What sort of a child is it?' "'A very nice little fellow, indeed.' AND I THINK IF I HAD BEEN PAPA, I SHOULD HAVE DONE THE SAME THING MYSELF. REALLY? THEN YOU DO THINK THIS CHILD IS SOMETHING OUT OF THE COMMON WAY, I SUPPOSE? PRAY, TELL ME, DEAR MARTHA, WILL YOU, IF YOU HEAR MUCH ABOUT THE PEOPLE THAT WORK IN THE FACTORIES, AND THE CHILDREN IN PARTICULAR? NO, INDEED, MISS BROTHERTON, I KNOW NOTHING IN THE WORLD ABOUT THEM, EXCEPT THAT I SOMETIMES HEAR PAPA SAY THAT THEY ARE ALL VERY IDLE AND UNGRATEFUL, REPLIED MARTHA. I have been told that they are a very wretched set of people. But perhaps they cannot help it, Martha, returned Mary. I do not know how that can be, Miss Brotherton. Everybody can help being idle, and everybody can help being ungrateful, I should think. But it seems that they all live together and make one another worse. And in that case, the children are very much to be pitied. For poor little things, they cannot help themselves. What makes you think this little boy is a nice child? HAVE YOU EVER TALKED TO HIM MUCH? YES, A GOOD DEAL, BUT PAPA HAS BEEN TAKING HIM ABOUT TO A GREAT MANY HOUSES, AND, BESIDES, HE HAS BEEN OCCUPIED VERY MUCH IN LEARNING HIS PART FOR DUO, WHO WAS TEACHING HIM, SAID THAT HE COULD HARDLY READ AT ALL. SO I HAVE BEEN TRYING TO HELP HIM, AND HE IS VERY QUICK, BUT I LIKE HIM TOO, BECAUSE HE APPEARS SO FOND OF HIS MOTHER AND BROTHER. HE CARES FOR NOTHING THAT CAN BE GIVEN HIM UNLESS HE CAN TAKE SOME OF IT TO THEM. AND DOES YOUR PAPA LET HIM DO SO? "'Oh, yes, every day.' "'That is very kind. "'Then I suppose the little fellow is superlatively happy.' "'I don't know,' replied Martha, with a slight shake of the head. "'It is very strange if he be not,' observed Miss Brotherton. "'If he were kept from his mother I could easily understand that he might be very miserable, "'notwithstanding the great good luck that has befallen him. "'But if he is permitted to see her constantly, I can't imagine what he can want more.' "'I don't know,' again replied Martha. The expected guests began now rapidly to assemble, and refreshments were handed round previous to their being conducted to the room prepared for the evening's amusement. "'Don't forsake me, dear Martha,' whispered Miss Brotherton. "'I am not very intimate with any of these ladies and gentlemen, and I shall not enjoy the evening's amusement unless I am seated next to you.' Martha felt a good deal surprised at the compliment, but readily agreed to the proposal, and in a few minutes Lady Dowling, who was anything rather than pleased by the whole affair, gave the assembled party to understand that the time fixed for their entering the theatre had arrived. On tiptoe with curiosity, and eager beyond measure, to see what Lady Clarissa Shrimpton, Mr. Osmond Norval, and all the Dowlings would look like on stage, the numerous company almost ran over one another in the vehement zeal with which they prepared to obey her, of course, no expense had been spared in fitting up the apartment allotted to the purpose, in form and style, as like as might be to a theatre. And, thanks to the taste and ingenuity of the little French governess, the thing had been not only expensively, but well done. The space railed in for the orchestra very conveniently divided the company from the actors. And, when the curtain drew up, the well-lighted stage exhibited such a carpeted, draperied, mirrored, and flower-adorned arena as well-dressed amateur ladies and gentlemen delighted to appear in. The very sight of the stage elicited a shout of applause. And when Mr. Osmond Norville, habited at all points according to the most accredited draped portraits of Apollo, came forth from behind the sky-blue silken hangings which formed the coulisse, all the ladies began clapping till their little palms and fingers tingled with the unwanted exercise. The young poet certainly looked very handsome, and not the less so, because he knew that besides Miss Brotherton's eyes, which he was certain must be fixed upon him, though he could not distinguish her in the obscure corner in which she had chosen to place herself beside Martha, those of Miss Arabella and Miss Harriet Dowling, both estimated at twenty thousand pounds, were fixed upon him too. Not to mention the speaking orbs of Lady Clarissa Shrimpton, whose nobility he had little doubt might be one to smile upon and endow him with all the little earthly good she had— Could he make up his mind to believe that he could do no better? All this flattered, excited, and inspired him most becomingly, and as he stood, with one silken leg slightly advanced and so firmly planted as to require only the toe of its fellow to support him from behind, with a lyre suspended round his neck and a wreath of bay leaves mixing with the dark curls upon his brow, at least two dozen young ladies in the manufacturing interest declared to their secret souls that they never could hope to see another like him. Having first recited the pretty sonnet before mentioned, in which he modestly hinted at more points of resemblance than one between himself and Milton, he suddenly changed his hand, and having, as he expressed it to Lady Clarissa, gleaned with the hand of a master, he spoke the following lines, which in the copies printed for private circulation, were headed. Shakespearean Prologue "'Open your ears, for which of you will stop the seat of hearing when loud rumor speaks?' I, from the Orient to the drooping West, making the wind my post-horse, will unfold the act performed by virtuous Dowling here. Oh, for a muse of fire that should ascend the brightest heaven of description! Then should the noble Dowling, like himself, assume the form of mercy, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, pain, and labor crouch, all subdued, etc., etc., The applause which followed this lasted so long that the performers began to fear there would not be enough time left for the piece. But by degrees, the tumult subsided, Apollo was permitted to retire, and the business of the scene began. There was something more nearly approaching a balance of power at Dowling Lodge than is often to be found in the domestic arrangements of gentlemen and their wives. For, though it may be a very doubtful point, whether man or wife most frequently get the mastery, It but rarely happens that the matter long remains unsettled. At Dowling Lodge, however, there was a beautiful alternation of power, which the measured movement of the engine in their factories, first sending up one side and then the other, might perhaps have suggested. If matters came to a downright quarrel, however, Sir Matthew was sure to be the conqueror, for her ladyship got frightened and gave in. But when any differences of opinion arose on points of no great importance, The lady's murmurings and mutterings were equally sure to be victorious, and Sir Matthew let her have her way, merely because, like the organ-grinder, he knew the wally of peace and quiet. End of chapter 10, part 1